Hello and welcome to the After Sermon Podcast, where we look at a Bible topic, character, or concept. And today we're looking at God's love displayed through the judgment as we explore the sermon, Turbo Cars, Slow Judgment. Well, hello and welcome to the After Sermon Podcast, where today I am joined by, of course, Mitchell Sonter, as per usual. Hello, I'm back. And uh, the Formula One racer himself, Michael Godfrey. Hey, everyone. I can drive pretty fast. Not that I can <laughs> Well, thank you both for joining. It's been a while since we've recorded a podcast. I think this is the first one I've recorded this year. Um, life just got the better of me uh, this year. But this will be the first of, uh, I think it's seven more episodes till we hit episode 50. And episode 50 is kind of uh, my ultimate aim of where I want to get to. Uh, you know, ASP has been a, a really um, impactful ministry. We've seen it uh, reach people all across the world. And uh, it's really good having people who regularly listen in. And rather than just kind of leave it awkwardly, I think at episode 43 and just never come back, I thought, why not we, why don't we just go to a nice round number and um, maybe we can put a nice bow on that ministry for the time being. So we're on our path to hitting episode 50, and this is episode 44. And we're going to start the year, start the year in October <laughs> with uh, a really interesting topic, which is the investigative judgment. Uh, now, this is a, a doctrine which is unique to Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, and I think we've made it pretty clear on the podcast before that we uh, were all Christians and more specifically, we'd all say we're Seventh-day Adventist Christians, um, which we're all very proud of being a part of that church body. But this doctrine hasn't uh, kind of gone without any difficulty or controversy in its history and past. So I'm interested uh, to hear from the two of you. In your personal experience, have you, you know, encountered any of um, these kind of controversies at all? Or have you, uh, do you have any personal experiences in your personal life with this doctrine that you think would be helpful to share? Um, I, don't, I don't know if I've encountered any like uh, mainstream, at least mainstream for the church, controversies about the doctrine. Um, but I'd say just like personally, I've had, you know, questions here and there. Um, I'd say one of the more recent ones that I've had is kind of around uh, if we're born in a world of sin, how can we be judged for something that we didn't choose? Um, essentially the question like, I didn't choose to be born here. Um, why am I then judged for being born here? You know what I mean? Mm. Um so I was, yeah, I was wrestling with that a little bit, but um, I came to a realization and it's really significant the other day or a little while ago. Um, essentially, because of Adam's choice in the Garden of Eden, we get sin and I didn't choose to be born here. I was just born here and received that sin. It was easy. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I didn't do anything to earn it. Um, and therefore I didn't do anything to earn being judged sinful. Um, so it seems to be that for, for it to be fair on me when I'm judged, the way out of this world needs to be equally non-works-based because it was non-works-based to begin with that I received this sin. Therefore it has to be non-works-based that I receive freedom from it. And so the other, the other uh, little while ago, I realized, well, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. It's exactly the whole point of that message. It's kind of partnered the whole righteousness by faith and the judgment. They're partnered together in that it was super easy to receive sin. And it's also totally not according to my own works that I receive justification from sin for, or, or, a non-guilty verdict in the judgment. Mm. No, very interesting. And yeah, when talking about receiving sin, I, 
I guess you're referring to like receiving the that sinful nature we inherit from Adam, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I hadn't really thought about it like that. That's awesome. What about you, Michael? Got anything up your sleeve? Yeah, sure. I'm um, very well said, Mitchell, as well. Um, so similarly to Mitchell, I, I wouldn't say I've personally encountered people that have um, argued me profusely about this particular doctrine, but um, definitely I've, I've seen a lot of criticism of it um, online or heard about it. Um, yeah, I had some questions myself as well. I think um, I think what, what you brought out really well in your sermon, Chris, is... Um, is, is that the investigative judgment really clearly demonstrates the character of God. I thought that was a really, really good point that was brought out. Because um, for me, I think something that I struggle with, with it, yeah, similar to what Mitchell was saying, um, yeah, I just, um, the, the fairness of God, um, the, 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 thing is, the thing that we have to understand is that we're not God. Um, and um, thank goodness for that, because I don't think I would do a very good job at it if it were up to me. Um, thankfully God's love is a combination of justice and mercy and you can't have one without the other Um, Mm. and the fact that God's so transparent to be able to allow himself to be on trial just um, proves his goodness I think to the universe Mm. so yeah that's kind of what I got out of it nice well I'll share uh, one experience I had which uh, actually was the motivation for this sermon. This was uh, the second sermon I preached here um, since moving to Kinnabarabran and when I arrived uh, there's this Bible study group uh, that's across all of the different churches here in the little local community. Uh, they meet up for breakfast and study the Bible together and it's a really really good group. Uh, absolutely love all the guys there and Uh, We have a great time uh, every week. And uh, before I arrived, though, one of these guys, uh, he just out of the blue uh, went on this like tirade, this rant against the Seventh-day Adventists who were attending in the group about this doctrine of the investigative judgment. And he was, uh, this is, mind you, one of the, the nicest uh, you know, most genuine, awesome people in the world. But this is a real sticking point for him. And he just kind of went off at the Adventists in the group. And they were kind of caught off guard. And they were like, oh, man, we're not quite sure how to um, best defend this doctrine, especially, you know, when they were put on the spot like that. And so the request was put to me, hey, we kind of um, need some help understanding this doctrine better. And that's kind of where this spun out from. But it's interesting how, um, yeah, this was such a a sticking point for this guy. Uh, You know, uh, this is between friends. These were people who were friends with each other. And in doing some research on this topic, he clearly went down some weird rabbit hole. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, exploded a bit. So I think... Uh, it's really important that we try and unpack this. And I think the reason people struggle with it a lot is on the surface, it looks sort of complicated. But in reality, if you just simplify it down to its most basic elements, it actually makes a lot of sense. And it's actually quite straightforward. So basically, uh, I guess this is the recap portion. Uh, During the sermon, we looked at the fact that before a judge executes judgment, it's fair that they investigate the evidence first. And that if uh, a guilty party were to be given judgment without first having that, you know, cross-examination, we could say, they would feel they were unjustly treated. And uh, the example I used at the very beginning was uh, with Michael and his experience, uh, where he was unfairly accused of something. And thankfully, justice was served in that instance. Um, Go watch the the sermon, if you haven't already, but go watch the sermon to hear that fun story. Thanks for using me as an illustration. (laughs) Oh, I I was happy I could slip it in. (laughs) I was was surprised to listen to it, but it was was a good sort of surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. And um, then we just looked at biblical examples of how before God executes his judgment, he investigates the situation first. And then we looked at examples where God allows others to investigate his investigative judgment. That's how much input he wants 
to make this as fair and just as possible. And then we even looked at the fact that one day we will participate in that investigation. So it's just this biblical principle we see all throughout the Bible where God, in wanting to be fair to the guilty party, allows for, uh, allows for a time for uh, the actions of an individual to be investigated first before that judgment is executed. And so I think we're going to look at probably the key example of this in the Bible, which is in Daniel chapter 7. So uh, if you're listening along and you want to read the Bible verses with us, I encourage you to pull up uh, Daniel chapter 7, and I'll be reading from the New King James. What translations do you guys have? Uh, New King James as well. Yeah, New King James as well. There we go. Okay, we didn't plan that. That was just, <laughs> that was just lucky. So if you've got a New King James, pull that out. But otherwise, you should be able to follow along with us pretty well uh, too. And we're going to just follow two main kind of discussion points here. There's, there's kind of a, a heroic side or a good side to the story and a bad side. The bad is represented by these beastly powers. And uh, these beasts, they, uh, they persecute God's people. And the ultimate expression of these is this guy called the little horn. And then we have God and his angels and the saints who serve as kind of the good faction in this story. And it's a vision given by God to the prophet Daniel. Now, we won't read the first part uh, where it talks about the four beasts, but Michael, would you be able to just give us a quick summary breakdown of uh, what these beasts look like and what they kind of represent? Sure. Um, all right. So what we've got here is we've got we've got four beasts um, appearing one after the other. So you've got the first one coming up and they're, they're pretty strange creatures. They're not, you know, Daniel had to find the, the language um, to, to be able to describe them because they weren't like animals that he'd seen before. So, so he says the first one is like a lion and it has wings like an eagle. He doesn't say it is a lion. It, says it looks like a lion. This is the best thing I have to describe it. It has wings like an eagle. Um, and <clears throat> the second one is a bear. The bear is raised up on one side. It's got three ribs in its mouth. The third one is a leopard with four wings, four heads. And the fourth one, he doesn't even have an animal to compare this one to. He just says it's this terrifying, frightening beast. I know artists have depicted it like some sort of dinosaur or dragon or something um, with these big iron teeth that crush things. And um, if, you, if you read down further, he, um, he explains what the first, I believe it's the, it's the first one, what the first one represents. And then we, from there, and, and from looking up elsewhere in the Bible, can... Um, we can determine that the first one, they, they all represent kingdoms. The first one representing Babylon, um, which is the lion. Babylon gets overthrown by the bear, which is the Medes and the Persians, raised up on one side because the, um, I believe the Persians were stronger, which is why they raised up on one side. Um, after that, Greece comes in swift like a leopard because they conquered so quickly with their four wings and four heads um, to represent the four generals that took over after Alexander the Great. And then this terrifying beast, like nothing else, um, is, is the next empire in succession to take over, which is um, the mighty Iron Empire of Rome. And you can tell from the Iron Teeth that there's little doubt that that's talking about Rome, especially considering the, the um, massive impact that Rome has had on the world and still has today in terms of culture and society. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, so it gives us this kind of timeline of um, powers and nations that would rise up after Babylon. And this, the first part of this vision also parallels the vision of Daniel 2, uh, which gives this statue uh, made of different metals. And each of the metals represents uh, each of these kingdoms that we see here again in Daniel 7. So Daniel 7 begins just by building on what we've seen already in Daniel 2, but it gives us a bit more detail this time. And then uh, we get to this, this fourth beast. Uh, Mitchell, would you be able to read verse 7 and 8 for us? Yep. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out, of, out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Mm. So, yeah, we're introduced to our little horn, who is this villain character. Uh, so now we want to figure out, okay, well, what does this little horn represent? We saw the other beasts, they represent um, other nations. And in fact, in verse, um, let me have a look, 16, Daniel says, I came near to one who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four nations which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Uh, then I wish to know the identity, uh, the truth about the fourth beast. Um, and we'll get to that, actually. Um, so each of these represent be, uh, nations as we describe. But what does the little horn represent? Well, thankfully, the chapter gives us some points of identification or descriptions of this little horn uh, so we can figure out who this person is uh, historically. So looking through the text, what are some clues that we have here or descriptions about this little horn that might be able to help us? Um, as you have a look in there, uh, Michael and Mitchell, what, what, yeah, what kind of bits of descriptions or clues might be uh, might we be able to gather from this chapter about who the little horn is sorry what was that about who the little horn is is that what we're yeah doing? about who the little horn is um well first of all it comes up among the other 10 mm. i think that's an important point looking at the origins yeah okay so what are these 10 little uh, not little what are these other 10 horns um i think if we remember what michael was talking about from verse Six, where the leopard had four heads, and Michael was mentioning that when Alexander the Great sort of died, his empire, the Greek Empire, was divided among his four generals. Mm. Um, we've got precedent there to indicate that in these beasts, multiples of a certain characteristic represent multiple leaders or multiple divisions, I guess. Mm. Um, so I guess with that in mind, we could say that the ten horns represent divisions of the empire that this beast represents. Yes, yeah. So I always forget what date it is. There's some date in the 500s-ish. 538, I think, you, I think you're thinking of. Uh, 538 is, well, we'll, I, we'll get to 538. Because um, the fall of Rome happens a little bit before 538 from memory. But... I don't, I don't remember what date it is. <laughs> we need Kiralee in here, the, the ancient Rome expert. But, but yeah, so Rome collapses. And yeah, as you said, Mitchell, it's divided into 10 kind of lesser uh, states or tribes. So yeah, we're looking for a power which comes from Rome, but also comes from within these 10 kind of uh, divisions. So that gives us a bit of, geography and a bit of uh, time and then it says this little horn plucks out three of the other horns so it um you know it takes control or power over from three of these other states so that's important to know as well um what are some other other things in this chapter that might help us What about he He seems to be persecuting the saints of God? And he's speaking pompous words. How would you kind of describe pompous words in less Elizabethan English? Uh, well, my, the Bible like uh, says an alternative translation would be great things instead of pompous words. I guess making big claims. Or even um, even... Pompous makes you think of kings, so maybe even raising yourself to like a higher 
uh, authority than you have. Mm. No, that's a good yeah, way of describing it. Uh, verse 25 says, he will intend to change times and laws. Um, now, what law are we kind of referring to here? Is this, you know, like speed limits or what are we thinking here? <laughs> probably, yeah, something a bit more drastic. <laughs> In the context of this chapter, probably looking at the law of God. So he's going to attack the law of God and actually make a claim to change it. We could say that's a very pompous or great thing to say that this person or this power uh, can change the law of God. And then it says the saints, the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, a times and half a time. That's in verse 25. Um, yeah, Mitchell, maybe do you want to unpack what that time period is? Uh, I do want to, but I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember you can interpret uh, time as like a period of twenty. Is it twenty years? Uh, I think it's only just the one. Oh, okay. So yeah, time. Time uh, would be one times is two, and half a time half. So we get this period of three and a half years. Um, and then uh, what we want to apply when interpreting prophecy, as we said, pardon me, prophecy is all about symbols, all about, um, you know, everything's kind of encoded. And the same is true for periods of time. So here, this period of time is three and a half days or uh, uh, three and a half years in which you have 1,260 days. Uh, that's according to a Jewish calendar, which has 30 days in each month. And seeing as this is a Jewish book, that would be, you know, exegetically sound. We're interpreting it in the context of these writers. So these writers will understand that in a month you have 30 days. So <clears throat> 1,260 days, that doesn't sound like too bad right he's only persecuting the saints for three and a half years or is it uh, a larger amount of time what do you reckon what do you think michael um well i think if we're dealing in terms of prophecy then we um we need to think um probably in terms of the day for a year principle and realize that it's a lot longer than three and a half years i mean three and a half years doesn't doesn't really fit the, the scope. If we're talking about these empires rising, I, I don't think the empires are reigning for only a couple of years at a time. Yeah. So, you know, looking at it in the context of, of the whole chapter, it's, 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 it's probably another interpretation there. Oh, but, the, you know, that Roman <laughs> Empire that ruled for three oh, years. Yeah. Everyone yeah. remembers that one, right? That it's, a bit, it's a bit disappointing for an epic like the Bible to, to like, have this climax of the, the arch-villain <laughs> turns up and he's just here for three and a half years. Like, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I've never even really thought of it in that way, Michael, that like if all these other nations are ruling for, you know, I think most of them are over a hundred years and the Roman empire, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, is like, maybe around about like seven, 800 years. Oh, a long time. Yeah. hundred. Yeah. Years. Like it's getting close to a millennium. So it just does not make any sense for, the power which follows it, which is, again, supposed to be even more terrifying, uh, to only reign for three and a half years. So as we said, where time periods, just like all these other symbols, uh, are symbolic. They've got a deeper meaning to them. And we've, we have this uh, interpretive idea called the day-for-year principle, uh, which is found in other parts of prophecy in the Bible where one day equals one year. So if we're looking at 1,260 days here, in reality, we're looking at 1,260 years. Now that sounds a lot better. That, that makes a lot more sense now that, um, you know, they're reigning for this long period of time. And mm -hmm. Uh, it's, we, depending on your point of view it's not better for the saints that are being persecuted that's, that's, sorry yeah better exegetically we're, yeah. <laughs> we're doing a better job interpreting the text yeah uh, and Mitchell already uh, dropped the 
the time that this starts. So when does this time period start? 538. 538. Uh, now, why do we pick 538 as the start of this period in which the little horn power starts to persecute God's people? So um, back, it's back to the ten horns. We were, talk, we're talking about the fall of the Roman Empire, which is, I mean, if you look at history, it's based on the barbarian invasions that were just relentless. And they eventually broke Rome up into ten divisions, which we now know as Europe. Um, but what happened was around, oh, there was a, probably a 20-year period, I think, where the Roman Empire started to fight back a little bit. And they ended up defeating three of the three of the kind of tribes that built themselves out of the Roman Empire through those invasions. So they ended up actually, you know, in essence, uprooting those three tribes, taking back that that power, that land. And um, yeah, we basically can say that at the point where that third tribe was defeated, there were no further ones defeated, as far as I know. Mm. That is the that is the sort of the time frame. That's the point at which the um, you know this 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 little horn power seems to turn up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, we've gone through pretty much all the identifications of this little horn. I think it's we're in a place now where we can begin to identify it. Uh, this is, again, a power that comes out of Rome, helps defeat three of the tr 10 divisions from Rome, persecutes God's people for over a thousand years, speaks pompous words and speaks uh, blasphemies, and... Um, has a, a human-like quality to it as well. It says it has uh, the eyes like a man in verse eight. Uh, what we're looking at really is a religious power which uh, fits all of these things. And we know that looking through history, uh, after the Roman Empire collapsed, there was this power vacuum left in the, the capital of Rome. And it was actually the Christian church at the time which thought uh, they should go in and um, fill this void. And in a way, it, it actually began to an extent with pure motives. Um, they, they weren't really looking to be malicious. Um, this wasn't really so much a power grab. Uh, they, you know, the church was well-structured um, with their kind of leadership hierarchy. And they thought, well, with no kind of overarching political leadership, perhaps the church can lend its leadership, uh, its ecclesiastical leadership to assume this position. And so kind of in the offset, it started with to an extent pure motives, but it devolved very quickly. Uh, the old absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we actually see the Christian church begins to exhibit these beastly attributes that the other beasts had. So. Uh, the Christian church, it allies itself with uh, political leaders to take out these three states. Um, and from memory, it's because these three states were Aryans, uh, which are basically anti-Trins. So that, that was how you dealt with anti-Trinitarians in the day. You just invaded them. <laughs> um, and uh, we saw as well that throughout time the christian church began to say more pompous things like uh the leader of the church was god's representative on earth or that priests could forgive the sins of people these are really big bold claims and eventually we see that the church devolves to such an extent that actually persecutes god's real people so we see here uh, this kind of this offshoot uh at this point where there's the kind of official Christian church, uh, like official in the eyes of the world, which God sees as really a false church. He sees that they've gone off the path. They're no longer doing what he asked them to do. And they've become just as bad, if not worse, as these beastly powers that came before them. And in the meantime, God has a true church, uh, which is small. It's a minority. It's not the official church, like on paper. Um, but God identifies these people as his true followers, and they're the ones who are persecuted during this time, which we know as the Dark Ages or the, Media, uh, the Middle Ages. So this power uh, of the medieval church 
um, or the Roman church during this time is this persecuting power. Um, and uh, we could probably go even more in depth into that. Revelation continues to expand on that idea, but we're a bit short for time. But there's a, uh, oh, look here. Pagan Rome was destroyed in 476 AD and divided into 10 states. Oh, I got the date in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that's we that's our villain uh, for the chapter. We've identified who our villain is. It's uh, a counterfeit church, uh, a church which claims to work on behalf of God, but in reality has beastly attributes and persecutes God's true church. Um, a thought, a thought along with that. Um, as you said, I think, and you you put it really well. This was this was the church. Like this wasn't some other church that arose to try and you know, produce an alternative message. This was the same Christian church that was set up by Jesus himself. Mm. Like it's, it's a warning for us personally. Like um, if we aren't, if we aren't constantly, you know, asking God to lead us in truth and, and like focusing on what the Bible says and trying to understand what is right instead of, you know, just sort of following natural tendencies, we who are actually Christians can follow the same path. Like, um, yeah, it, it, this was the church of God, and it became the villain. Mm. Yeah, really it's crazy when you think about the amount of people turned off by Christianity, because when they look at history, they see the church, and it was this terrible beast of a power. Mm. Um, yeah, Satan was very effective in infiltrating into God's church. Mm. Um, something I want to say as well, Chris. Um, yeah, you've been talking a lot about the history of, of the church and the transformation of it. Um, I want to make it clear that that is history. You know, there's a lot of historical records that prove it. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs being one example of of the rampant persecution of, um, of of people in the Middle Ages. But there's, yeah, yeah, this is this is not just an interpretation or um, uh, a, a particular viewpoint. This is realistically historical fact. Mm. definitely well we've set up our our main arch villain let's see what happens to him and uh, see if we can solve this problem of this persecuting power so i'll read out for us verses 9 and 10 in daniel 7 verse 9 and 10 it says i watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated his garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So what do we... What uh, situation is being described here in these opening verses um sounds very much like a judgment scene um, the court was seated the books were open people are sitting down on uh, you know with, with authority yeah mm. like yeah and uh the ancient of days here would represent god um but what's interesting it says i watched till thrones were put in place why are there multiple thrones do you think because if it's just God, he would just need his one throne. And we're told, you know, a little bit about that. His throne was a fiery flame. But it actually says, I watched till thrones, multiple thrones were set up. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's a contrast there. Thrones in the, in the start of verse 9 and then his throne singular. Like, mm. there's definitely a contrast between the two. Yeah. Yeah, it looks as though... God has people who are going to be assisting him in this judgment. Um, as Michael said, you know, the throne kind of indicates this position of authority uh, over this, this scene. And yeah, it's not just God who sits in the throne. There are other people as well. It's, and it even says a thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the court was seated. So, you know, those in the court would include some of these people attending to God. So again, we have this God is 
wanting people to help him with his judgment, um, which is just so, I think, counter-cultural to the idea we have of God, that God just makes these decisions on a whim, however he likes it, and if you don't like it, well, tough luck. Um, but here it's a completely different scene. Uh, God has lots of people who are helping him in this judgment. Mm. And it, it speaks volumes to um, Satan's, um, his, his accusation of God as well, um, talking about how God is unfair and unjust and uh, unloving. He, he's got all these accusations against God and for God to be that transparent, to be able to say, you know, put me on trial and allow me to be fully seen. Um, yeah, that's, that's huge. Mm. Nice. Um, Mitchell, do you want to read verse 11 and 12? Yep. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Okay, so the beast gets judged. Well, we got there pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't take too long, did it? I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and he's slain and his dominion is taken away from him. Uh, Now, just thinking about that, like the reason that God can so readily judge the little horn is because for 1,260 years, history has demonstrated the the evil and the corruption of this. Um, Now, Uh, Michael, do you want to read 13 and 14? Sure. Um, Verse 13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Oh, there you go. There's the happy ending. There we go. That was nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, what's interesting is this son of man character. He's the one who kind of uh, brings about the happy ending. He's the one who brings resolution to this conflict. Um, what do we learn about this son of man character and how do we identify who he is, do you think? Like it, it, the first thing we're told is he comes with the clouds of heaven. Mm. Now that's typically, you know, uh, a description used for God. So mm. he's kind of described as divine, but he's called the son of man. And he's able to come before the presence of God, the ancient of days. And then he's given dominion over the entire world. Um, so he's kind of this almost high priestly character who comes before humanity on beh- uh, comes before God on behalf of humanity, but he also rules over the world. So he's kind of this high priestly king sort of character. Um, yeah, do we have any high priestly kings mentioned later on in the New Testament? Oh, I don't know about the New Testament, but I know of someone in Genesis. Oh, a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Oh, could, could this be referring to him, Christopher? I think I so. <laughs> <laughs> hey. And uh, yeah, so we have in Genesis Melchizedek. He's a high priest and king. And then, yeah, Mitchell, do you want to explain uh, the significance of him to Jesus? Uh, so he was, uh, you can read about it in, I don't know what chapter. It was one of the chapters where, Ab- it was just after Abraham went and defeated the armies that came and invaded Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and he came back and he offered tithe to this guy named Melchizedek, who uh, is recorded as being a king, um, but he also acted in the part of a uh, priest to God himself. Because, I mean, Abraham at this point was a worshipper of the God, and Abraham considered this guy someone he could pay tithe to in order to pay tithe to God. Mm. So obviously Abraham believes this guy serves God. Um, so, he, yeah, he's, he has both the roles of king, which is authority, dominion sort of power as well as priest which is sort of um serving the people as well and so essentially the idea is that 
Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek where he, he is both of those things combined. He's both the one above, but he's also the one beneath, lifting us up. Um, and there's a verse somewhere. I, you might know the verse, um, the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, it's uh, the book of Hebrews really expands on Jesus being a yeah, part of that order of Melchizedek. And maybe, Mitchell, do you want to flesh out for us how Jesus kind of fulfills those roles of king and priest? I do want to, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, do you want to jump in? Um, I, I, I would, but I also don't have a lot to say on that. No. Well, <laughs> um, I think yeah, uh, I mean, we the simplest way of explaining it is, uh, you know, Jesus kind of reclaims dominion of the earth, particularly at his crucifixion. We see it where, you know, he has this crown on his head. He's crowned uh, as a king. And he kind of retakes that dominion away from Satan who had laid claim to it. And we see that here, dominion is taken away from the beasts and given to Jesus. And then Jesus uh, serving as high priest, he has that role of intercessor between us and God. So we have an advocate, someone who uh, goes before God and pleads our case on our behalf. And we see that Jesus is successful, uh, that dominion is given to him. Now, what's interesting is in verse 26, it says, the court shall be seated. They shall take away the little horn's dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms and the whole heaven shall be given to who? To the people, to the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So, Dominion is taken away from the beasts, it's given to the Son of Man, and then the Son of Man gives it to the saints. So uh, those who were once persecuted are now given authority and dominion, mm. which I think is pretty cool. And uh, I think the coolest, maybe my favorite verse in here, uh, comes in verses 21, 22. And uh, I think this really puts to bed any doubts people had about the nature of God investigating before he executes judgment. Because a lot of people get this idea that the investigative judgment is God trying to, getting a magnifying glass and trying to find a sin that will buy you from heaven. Like how, how can God find a way to, um, you know, nitpick through your life and find, find out, oh, there we go, that, that, he, he can't come in. And for some people who don't understand it, it causes, it causes them a lot of worry, stress, anxiety. Mm. But that's not at all what the idea is about. Um, Michael, uh, verses 21 and 22. These are my favorite verses in the chapter. Yeah, sure. It says, as I watched, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Mm. Wow. So, yeah, what, do you, what are your kind of thoughts or reactions to those verses? Well, definitely um, definitely the, the fact that the judgment was made in favour of the saints. Mm. It definitely flips it on its head, the idea that he's trying to find wrong. Rather, he's, evidently he's trying to do it for our sakes. Mm. Yeah, I like how you said it, it flips it on its head. This is a judgment that is made in favor of God's people. God is performing this investigative judgment so that without a shadow of a doubt, Satan, the accuser, cannot say, you know, these people uh, have no right to be in heaven. God has judged in favor of his saints and they are, uh, you know, worthy in, in that they've inherited Jesus' worthiness but they are worthy to receive dominion and power and be judged in favor. And I like how it says that the saints were suffering until the ancient of days come. So mm. until Jesus came, God's people were suffering uh, under Satan's, you know, tyrannical rule, but in here he comes and this accuser does not prevail against them. Uh, he does not succeed in accusing them and saying, no, 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 they don't deserve to, 
to enter heaven. They don't deserve eternal life. And then Jesus comes in and he goes, uh uh-uh. But I'm, you know, crediting my righteousness, my worthiness to them. I'm their advocate. I'm their intercessor. So they're worthy to come in. And I'm judging in favor of them. Um, A little bit to add. uh, Into verse 14, I noticed it's immediately in context with the judgment that's being done on on the fourth beast as well as the previous three. Mm. Um, So verses 13 and 14 sort of, you can read that in the, that immediate context of the judgment. And then right at the end, it says, his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And you could read that two ways. You could say, oh, it'll just last forever. But also in the context of the judgment, those who are part of the kingdom of Jesus, of heaven, will not be judged guilty. Mm. Yeah, you can read it that way as well. Like we will come through the judgment um, guiltless because of, yeah. because of Jesus' sacrifice, not because of our own, our own goodness. Yeah, great point. Mm. Yeah, I haven't thought about it like that. That's awesome. Well, that kind of uh, concludes going through my notes here, guys. Uh, do you have any kind of closing thoughts that you'd like to share kind of based on this chapter and the topic we've looked at or uh, maybe tell our listeners what your takeaway uh, message would be or what you think is the most important thing we can learn from this topic? Well, for me, like I said, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic that is sometimes misunderstood or, or maybe even oftentimes misunderstood. And um, I think a lot of people, when they think of the investigative judgment, like you said, Chris, it's, it's all about their picture of who God is. And they see God as this person that's got this magnifying glass and he's looking for every, you know, this is something to, something to convict you of, some sort of um, sin that will buy you from heaven, keep you out of heaven. But that's not what it is at all. And I think... Um, from reading this chapter as well as um, the the passages in your sermon in, in Genesis and other places, um, it really just brings out how the judgment is is for our benefit. Um, it's for the benefit of us. It's for the benefit of the onlookers, the angels, like you were saying. And it's for um, and it's really to um, show us a, a, a picture of God not as not as this um, this this tyrant who doesn't show any sort of compassion or mercy but actually is this as this being who is both fully just and and fully merciful which is um you know realistically like you said god is love um Mm. and and i think the idea that god is love is something that should be seen in really um throughout the bible and the fact that it is seen in this doctrine it i think to me shows that it's a really good interpretation of doctrine and it's a really important thing to understand Hmm. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, I think for me, it's, uh, as I said, that my favorite verse in this chapter is uh, judgment was made in favor of the same. Uh, This idea that God is doing everything in his power to ensure as many people as possible make it into the kingdom, which is not destroyed, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. He wants them to have eternal life. Uh, God is not looking for excuses to bar us from heaven. He's looking to give, he's looking for every reason to get us in. And uh, Jesus is the ultimate uh, way that we are able to get into, into heaven and get into that uh, relationship with God that we've been distanced by. Uh, we're physically distant from God. And I think, yeah, it's a, really comforting idea to know that God has your back and that the purpose of the investigative judgment is so that God can say, I have looked at this person's life. I have seen what my son Jesus has done for them. Uh, Satan, you cannot accuse this person of not being able to come into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I've looked over it uh, and, you know, uh, I've invited other others to help in this process as we see that there's thrones and attendants others are involved in this and again the universe can see what you've been doing this whole time you know through these beastly powers through the little horn through all sorts of means that the universe has seen what a kind of person you are and so we know that you know you're just you are accusing them to try and keep them out of heaven 
And uh, yeah, we make that mistake. We often get the attributes of Satan and apply them to God. Oh, mm-hmm. it's trying to mm-hmm. keep you out. That's what Satan is trying to do. God is doing everything he can <clears throat> to try and get us in. And I think that's a really comforting thought. Anything to wrap up, Mitchell? Yeah, just a really quick addition to what you just said. Um, I think at the end of the day, this is all about Jesus. This is all about the cross. Like, um, I think a lot of people look at these extra doctrines and they think, oh, man, it's so works-based. Oh, man, it's so scary. But that's the necessity of these doctrines is not that, not that they're meant to make us feel like we've got to work hard to achieve a guiltless judgment. But, but they point out how significant the cross was. Mm. Like, like the whole point of these doctrines is, is Jesus had to die for us to come home. And, and this, this, these doctrines just, just elevate that. They don't, like, it, I'll put it this way. If, if I were judged based on what I could do, I would, no one would be saved. You know, like, it would be impossible. The only reason in the, in the final judgment, the only reason we're going to have any kind of hope of eternal life is because of the cross. And that's, that's, that's the point of this stuff, is not to say, oh, God's trying to make you do the right thing. I mean, God's going to help us do the right thing, but the point of this is not to say that. The point of this is to say, this is how significant the cross is. Mm. Like, this, this, this judgment needed to happen. Justice needed to be done. But I've made a way, and that's the cross. And that, yeah, that, that's, that's basically the, the point I'd come to. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for, um, yeah, sitting down, having a chat about this important topic. And, of course, um, everyone listening, uh, you can hear more from Michael at his YouTube channel, Michael Godfrey. And if you'd like to hear more from all three of us, uh, there are plenty of After Some Podcast episodes uh, in our backlog where we just sit down and have a chat. So you can find that on YouTube, SoundCloud, or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts uh, to hear more about this topic. And look, uh, yeah, I really hope that uh, perhaps this is the first time you're hearing about this uh, idea. Maybe you've heard about it before and you haven't quite understood it. And I hope uh, both the sermon and uh, our discussion here has hopefully helped um, bring some new light to this idea and ideally, um, we study all of these doctrines, not so, you know, our, our heads get bigger, but so our heart gets transformed. And I hope uh, that has really been uh, the case this morning for you. Well, look, we will catch you another time on the After Sermon Podcast. Thank you again so much for tuning in and have a good one and good night. Good night. Good night, everyone.